Our scripture today is found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning and, and welcome to the Olathe Campus of Christ Community Church. My name is Nathan. I'm the, the campus pastor here. It's, it's good to be, be with you. We've been gone the last couple of weeks, and we were just saying as a family yesterday how, uh, how yes, how good it is to, to get away, um, but how much we miss our, our home church when we're not here. And so we're, we're grateful for the time, but also so grateful to be back with, with all of you here. Let me, let me pray for us, and we'll look into these words from the Gospel of Matthew together. God, we are so grateful that you have called us to this place to... Um, to be with others, to sing uh, your praises, to hear your word, God. And we are so grateful that we can do that uh, with freedom and without fear. Um, God, we know that, that uh, the price of that was not um, easy or free. Um, and we also know that we um, are in the minority in the history of the world, or even around the world today, to have such incredible freedoms. God, I pray that we would steward them well. Uh, that we would rejoice in, in what you've uh, done for us. And God, that we'd be mindful as well for those uh, who live in places where there is no such freedom, especially for our brothers and sisters around the world who continue to be oppressed. Um, God, I pray that you'd give them strength and hope in the midst of difficult things. And God, I, I pray as well as we uh, rejoice in the freedoms that we have, I, I pray that we as your people would delight all the more so uh, in the freedom that we have in you, Lord Jesus. Uh, that true freedom, ultimate freedom, is found in submission to you uh, and finding our identity, our hope, our lives, our joy rooted in you. God, I pray that even as we look at these words today, that you would um, speak to us in new and fresh ways so that we can understand more of who you are and who you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Okay, do you want to know the biggest mistake I think Jesus made? All right, exaggeration. Okay, I don't, I don't think Jesus actually made, made any mistakes. But like, if there's like one thing that I would have at least done quite a bit differently, it's us. Like, like this, the, the church, right? His people, a gathering of, I mean... Right? I mean, the, the fact, I mean, think about this. We're a little over halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working through it together as a church. Uh, and, you know, Jesus, he, he's beginning to, to prepare his disciples for his departure. I mean, essentially, he says, that, hey, guys, I'm going to leave soon. Um, and I want you all to meet together regularly um, and then do everything that I would do if I was still here. Right? 
bring redemption to everything that's broken, right? Every, everything where there's, uh, there's a problem, everything that's, that's, that's hurting, bring hope. Really, Jesus? We're the plan and there is no plan B? I mean, like, you know, us, look around, okay? It's, it's not pretty in here, okay? We're the ones. I mean, it almost, it almost feels a little bit like, um, like when kids make plans. And kids, I don't, I don't mean any disrespect, because I, I love how you kids can, you can plan, right? You can be such planners, I know. No, you got, you got me the stink eye. I get it. Um, I don't mean any disrespect, because like kids, when they plan something, right, it is focused, it is intense, and there are, there's no alternative, right? So if the plan is candy, that, that's it, right? That is, that is the plan. You can't, or, or, you know, if you think it's a good idea to, to you know, sled down the, the stairs, um, like, I haven't done that yet. Okay, well, don't, because um, I don't want an email from your mom. Um, <laughs> but like, if that's, if that's in your mind, not only is it like the plan, it's, it seems like the only plan, right? It's not just a good idea, it's the only idea. Or, or even like, you know, we have a family reunion uh, every year on my mom's side, and it's, it's tons of kids, like cousins and second cousins and a bunch of weird little kids who can't possibly be related to me. Um, but it's, it's chaos and it's just, I mean, but one, one year they had this idea of, of taking refrigerator boxes and duct tape and making boats and seeing who could last the longest in the lake, right? I mean, I love kids and their plans, right? Because there's, there's no alternative, right? There, and it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to succeed. It's, it has such focus and intensity. And it almost feels like Jesus here, right? The Son of God, the creator of the universe rips a page out of the third, third grade playbook and says, hey, let's, let's try this. And I, I, don't, I don't mean any disrespect to Jesus or third graders, okay? Um, but we're the plan. And there, there is no plan B. I, I honestly, I think this might be one of the most shocking things about the Christian faith. And I, I know, I mean, there's lots, especially if you're looking in from the outside or you're, you're new to kind of exploring these things. There's a lot that probably seems a little bit maybe strange or, or weird or, or just, you know, out there, right? But for me, this one, the church, because like, even if you can believe that there is a God and that he longs to fix his broken world, and even if you can believe that he himself came and he died and he rose again, like, even if you can believe all that, the fact that he leaves and he says to a group of disciples, his followers, us, now you go do it. You be my people. You do exactly what I would do if I were still physically here. You be my people, my church. Again, look around people. We're, it, it doesn't get much better than this. And yet, here we all are. 2,000 years later, 6,610 miles from where it all started. Well, Jesus' plan may sound crazy, you sitting right here this morning is living proof that he meant what he said. He predicted you. He predicted Christ's community. He planned his church. And as scary and humbling and shocking as it is, we're the plan, and there is no backup. All right, we've been studying Matthew for, I don't know, eight months or so, um, and, and we're kind of in this spot where, you know, each, each step, each story is one step closer to the cross, 
And Matthew, right, he's writing in hindsight, so he knows where it's going, and Jesus certainly knows where, it, where it's going. And, and Matthew, I mean, keep in mind, right, he's one of the original disciples, he's an eyewitness of these events, and he's, Jesus begins preparing his disciples for that departure. It's, it's going to happen. And for example, we saw last week that, that Jesus calls a people to himself, right, of all kinds, right? Even, even this, this Canaanite woman, if you were here, and, and Reed talked about what that means and how Jesus opens the doors wide for all kinds of people to come and be a part of, of his community, his, his plan. And before we, we give up in discouragement or frustration, before we accuse him of poor planning or hasty decision-making, we've got to look at what he, what he says this morning, because in this, this short little text, this incredible little story, right in the middle of this gospel, Jesus shows us three things about this plan. Three things that ought to define us, those of us who are followers of his. Three things that define his church. First, that, that the plan is about a person. It begins with a person. The plan is a call to action. And the plan, despite all the odds, Despite everything against it, the plan will not fail. So first, the plan begins with a person. Not a building, not an ideology or a mission statement, not, not even like a set of rules or a morality to live by or a kind of person. It begins with a person. And the context of Jesus' prediction here is, is so important. If you have a Bible, we're in Matthew 16. Uh, feel free to follow along or, or you, can, you can see it on the screen um, for us. But the context is really important because at this point, right, you, you've seen this. If you've been with us, at every turn, people are, are trying to figure out over and over again, who is Jesus really, right? It, they keep asking the question and everybody, everybody has a theory, right? So we saw, you know, the, the religious leaders, their theory is that Jesus really is a devil. Uh, the political leaders, are, they, their theory is that Jesus, he's just plain trouble, right? Uh, his hometown crowd, they don't, they don't know what to make of him. But everybody, everybody has a theory when it comes to Jesus, and it, it's inescapable, even for, us, even for us today, right? Because there's nobody quite like him. You cannot ignore someone who says the things that he says and does the things that he does. Everyone has a theory. And so when we get to, to verse 13, Matthew tells us, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Son of Man, that's one of Jesus' nicknames for himself. And it's interesting to me that, that this happens, this story, this, this really, really important conversation it happens in this little place called Caesarea Philippi, which is not a Jewish town, interestingly enough. And so you can see it, see it on the map there. It's to the north of the, the Sea of Galilee. It's still in sort of the, the, the region of Judea, uh, but it would have been much more of a Greco-Roman sort of outpost, made up primarily of, of Syrians and, and Romans and Greeks would, would live there primarily. Those, really outsiders, historically, culturally, uh, where, Jesus, where Jesus has this conversation, which is interesting to me. Uh, it's also a place that was known historically for all kinds of fairly bizarre pagan worship of, of all kinds of different gods. And so uh, way back in the past, it was, it was sort of a, a Babylonian or Canaanite place of, of worship to, uh, to Baal. Um, after that, it was, it was a, to a, a temple to the god Pan um, and when the Greeks had taken over. In fact, that's, that's the, the ruins um, of the temple of Pan, which, which would have been there uh, when Jesus and his disciples were there in that, in that town. 
Um, at, at sort of the, the time for Jesus, it was really a place for the, those to, to worship the Caesars. That's why it was called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it was a place to worship the, the emperor, whoever happened to be in charge uh, in that day. And, and so that's, that's the context in which Jesus has this incredible, this incredible question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or, you know, one of the other prophets. Again, lots of theories, but Jesus will not let this stay in the realm of theory. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's with this statement, this incredible declaration of, of who Jesus is, it's here that Jesus says, yes, and I'm going to gather my people And this is, this is my plan, and there, there, is no, there is no backup plan. But don't miss that it starts with the person, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, yeah, what, is that, what does that even mean, right? Well, Christ is not Jesus' last name, despite what we might think, right? Like it could have been Jesus Miller or something else, right? Christ, Christ is a title, uh, it's the Greek word for Messiah, uh, which is the Hebrew word for, for the anointed one, the chosen, the chosen one. It was carried with it ideas of like the savior, the king, the hero, the, the one to, to make the world right again. I mean, if you like, if you like stories, it's sort of like, um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like Peter saying like, Jesus, you are the true, you know, Luke Skywalker or, or Harry Potter or Frodo Baggins or, or whoever, right? Uh, you're, you're the one that everything's been waiting for. The, the one to finally make it right, but this time in, in real life. It's the, it's the one that they've been waiting for in the promises throughout the Old Testament. The one that, that all life and humanity rests. The one that we also long for. The Christ. And on, honestly, it's, it's even why at the end of this section, maybe you caught that when it was being read. Um, it's it's kind of weird because like Jesus ends this, this section, this incredible declaration. He says, yeah, but don't tell anybody. Did you catch that? Which kind of feels weird, like, like Jesus, like, really? Hey. Um, and, and yes, later on, he's going to tell his disciples to do the exact opposite. Tell people, get the word out. This is, this is who I am. I have come. But, but here he doesn't. In other places, the gospel, he says, you know, don't tell anybody what just happened. And probably the reason for that is because Jesus knows that as soon as the Romans get whiff that there is a new Messiah, a new Christ on the scene, he's gone, Right? Because they will crucify him um, for that, for these claims. But Jesus is like, not, not yet, right? I've, I've still got a little bit more work to do before you take my life. And so he's, that's, that's how big this declaration is. That's how important it is that Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen, to be, to be a part of this plan, to be a part of this people, the first step for every one of us is to answer that question for ourselves. Who do you say that I am. How would you answer that? Well, I go to church. It's not the answer. Yeah, but I'm a good person. Not the answer. And no, you're not, right? Well, I'll, I'll think about it later. It doesn't matter. It's, it's all going to work out fine, right? Or, or, or whatever. Like, really? Is that it? And your parents can't answer that question for you? Neither can your spouse or your closest friends. Jesus looks at each one of us and says, 
Who do you say that I am? And just like them, we have all kinds of theories, right? Because you have to have a theory about Jesus, right? Once you get wind of who this guy is, you, he cannot be ignored or dismissed. And so we have theories, you know, he's, well, he's a good prophet. He was a teacher, a revolutionary inspiration, right? He was a rule giver. Um, he's my warm, fuzzy blanket so I can sleep at night. He's my good luck charm. He's my, he's my, my heritage, right? My tradition. But, but none of those are the answer, and even, even if you do decide to simply dismiss him, to write Jesus off as, as nothing, as, as no one, like even, even if we go that route, you still have to have an explanation for these things. Right? I mean, you, you cannot just sweep them under the rug. And so, for example, like how do you account for the empty tomb, for example? And I, and I realize, right, it's, it's hard to believe somebody come back to life, but like why didn't his enemies who just killed him, why didn't they just drag the body out? Right? The rumors had started. Why not just end them already? Or how do you, how do you explain all the resurrection appearances? Or, or, or really the fact that Jesus' disciples go from, like in about a minute's time, essentially, around the resurrection, they go from cowards running to martyrs willing. Like, like that. Like how, how do you account for that? How do you explain Christ Community Church? 2,000 years and 6,000 miles away. Or the fact that there are churches in every place across the world. Even, even in places in which Christians are, are met with incredible amounts of hostility and oppression, and still the church survives and even thrives. And I, and I realize you can probably come up with all kinds of explanations for these things. I, I get that. I've worked through a lot of those myself, right? I, I know there are reasons to doubt and to struggle with all of these things. But to simply wipe them, wipe them away as like, well, it's just the opiate of the masses. People love religion and it makes them happy. It makes them feel better about themselves. But like, how do, you, how do you tell that to the North Korean pastor who was just murdered last month for being a pastor? Like, it doesn't explain it, right? Or, or the new believer in Kazakhstan uh, who just a few months ago was sentenced to two years of hard labor for converting to Jesus. Or even Matthew, who's writing these things, who would end up dying for them. And the millions of Christians who have, who have died since. I mean, for most, life gets harder with Jesus, not easier. And yet, here we are. We're the plan. And there is no plan B. So who do you say that he is? Okay, so I, I love this. I love kind of imagining stories and, you know, Peter gets it right and it's kind of this big moment. It's got to be for the disciples. And it, I don't know if you picture them like, are they high-fiving at this point or are they just kind of like freaking out? Like it's, it's these words that finally come out of their mouths and they don't, they don't know what to do with them. But, I, but either way, like Jesus, he's got to be proud in this moment of Peter, right? But how does he respond to him? Sort of like, yeah, Peter, you're right. Now go to church, I mean, even Peter had to be like, really? Like, is that the best we can do, church? Of course, it was a, a little bit different than what we often think when Jesus calls them to this place. Because for, for Jesus, church isn't merely something you, you go to, right? It's not, it's not like an activity on Sunday morning or whatever, right? That's not, that's not what he has in mind. For him, it's an identity, 
It's an entirely new way of understanding who you are and who your people are and who you belong to and, and all, everything, everything hinges upon. It's not, it's not a passive endeavor, but a call to action that this is, this is who my people will be. And it ought to be unlike anything else across the world. And so verse, verse 18, Jesus says in response to this, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus says. Like this, this room, this building, you know, something boring or at the very least optional on Sunday mornings, right? Of course not. That's not, that's not what he's saying. It, it means this people. The word, the word there for church is the Greek word ekklesia. It's a common word in the New Testament, uh, you might uh, expect. Um, it just literally means the ones who've been called out. Uh, in fact, it was used, it's a normal word in that culture. It's not like Jesus coined a word. Uh, it's like brand new to, to their world. It's just meant a gathering of people in a local space centered around a purpose. And so there could be all kinds of, of churches, all kinds of ecclesias centered upon all kinds of things. But Jesus says, this one belongs to me, right? It's not, it's not my church, it's not your church. Jesus says, it's, it's his church. It's his people. It's in his identity on his followers. And really that it's, it's a movement, right? It's a call to action. It's, it's beyond just simply something you go to, but it's a people gathered together to accomplish a task. That's, that was the idea of that, of that word. And he, even how Jesus kind of explains it there as the, as the verses continue, it's confusing. Um, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna take the time to get into it, but like this whole key, keys of the kingdom thing, right? I don't know, right? It's, it's, it's confusing, and yet, at the, at the very least, okay, there's a lot that we can probably say about that, but at the very least, what Jesus is saying is, I am giving you the authority to do what I would do, that you are to be about my work. My kingdom is your kingdom, and you belong here in it, and as sons and daughters in that kingdom, you, you're about my work. Even, even the imagery of the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? It's big language, right? I love, I love that imagery. Because we might often think that, well, does that, does that mean that like, like hell's out to get us and we got to protect ourselves from the big bad world and hunker down and of course not. Right? Gates aren't weapons. Gates are, gates are defensive. Jesus isn't saying the church is scared and defenseless. He's saying hell is because he has come and he has unleashed his power of redemption in this world through his death and resurrection and through, it out, through his outworking in his people that his church, armed with love and compassion, grace and humility, fight against whatever's broken and evil, against injustice and pain, poverty and racism and oppression, suffering and sin, even against death itself. And, and I know that for, for some of us, maybe you, you hear that and even, it just sounds arrogant or, or self-serving or you know, triumphalistic, like the church, we, we got this, right? Everybody watch out, we're just gonna take over kind of thing, heedless and reckless. And, and honestly, some have taken that this way and some churches have, have done exactly that. But if you just take one moment and look at who it is we're following, Jesus' triumph is on a cross and an empty tomb. He comes with self-sacrifice and humility with grace and love for, for broken and hurting people. And when Jesus calls a people, it is without fear or hesitation or self 
preservation. We don't hide from evil. We don't fear hell. We're not worried about death or sin or the devil or anything, anything that hinders human flourishing. When it comes to the gates of hell, we're the ones who knock. We're the, we're the ones who come on the offensive. We have nothing to fear. Not, not with him as our king. And, and if, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is, this is just who you are. It's not something you opt in or you know, decide whether or not you want to be. A, it's, it's not, that's not what it is, right? It's, it's, it's an identity thing. And so for, for all of us, we need to wrestle. Like, what are you waiting for? I mean, I, I realize some of, you are, some of you are in and others of you are not and some of you are kind of in, in, in the middle. But I think in some ways, we, I know we all hold back, don't we? Which makes sense. Church has problems, right? I mean, this church has problems. Right? It's messy, Church can be ineffective, can be boring, right? It can, it can disappoint us and hurt, hurt us, right? And some of you have been hurt by the church or you've seen, you've seen ugly things in churches before. But it's his plan. And there is no plan B. Why not work to make it better? Why not work to make it more effective, more beautiful, more redemptive in the things that he has, has called us to? I mean, if you're, if you're waiting for the perfect church, right? The, the church that never offends you, that you always agree with, uh, with people who you're sitting around who are just like you, right, who like all the same things, who never get on your nerves, right? If you're looking for all of your needs to be met, I mean, come on, right? Do you really think that you're going to find that? No, of course not. And and if if that's what we're looking for, I mean, not only will we not be changed, right? If you're only surrounded by people that you agree with and like all the time, you're never going to be changed, right? You're never going to have those rough edges rubbed off, but, but even beyond that, like you're just going to go from church to church to church and you're going to miss out on all that Jesus has for us in his community, broken as it is. You know, for, for others of us, maybe, maybe it's not that you sort of jump around or, or looking for something in particular, but you just kind of assume church is, it's a hobby, right? It's an activity for Sundays. It's something to make me feel nice or part of my tradition or heritage or whatever, but that, that can't be it either. I mean, for this to be our identity, the, the core of, of who we are, for us to be the people that Jesus describes, it demands everything from us. Like there's no, there's no half ways, right? It demands all of it, all, our time, our energy, the way we understand who we are and, and the things that we do, right? How our, our, we understand our, our work differently because we, we're the church when we're at work and at home and at, at school and in our neighborhood, the way we engage in our hobbies, like it requires all of that, our time and our money, our willingness to be uncomfortable. And even this, this call to action. Again, I just want to be careful here. It's not, it's not that we, we like take back power, right? We want to triumph over our enemies or those who, who are different from us or we disagree with. Or... It's not what Jesus means. Jesus dies for his enemies. And even, even the Apostle Paul later on, he, he tells us that our battle as, as his church is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. Paul says it's, it's against the, the hidden supernatural forces of darkness. And we fight that battle by loving others, by caring for the vulnerable and sacrificing our own, our own needs and desires. And we're the church wherever we go, not, not confined by walls or a building. 
And so for us, I mean, just a few uh, simple examples, and we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, we're not doing nearly enough in our community, but our, our relationship with Woodland Elementary down the street. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a, a backpack drive to provide resources for under-resourced children. Or, or even the, the Love KC video we watched at the start of the service, right? The ways we want to engage with our, our partners in our city for the good of, of all within our city to, with the gospel of Jesus. Or, or you've heard us talk about uh, the relationship we have with our brothers and sisters in Rwanda and, and the way we want to root deeply there and commit to what God is doing there through them and the relationship that we have. We're going to have a, a lunch in a couple of weeks to find out a little bit more about what that, what that means for us as a church and how we engage better. And yes, believe me, we have a long Long, long ways to go. But we're the plan. And there, there is no plan B. And so if, if you're following this, right, just to be clear, Jesus picks broken, needy, desperate people. People with problems, people like us, right? The disciples, are, they're a mess. There's no superheroes in this room. It's not, it's not how Jesus works, right? He he picks people who cannot do this work. And, and then he gives us an impossible task, right? You know everything that's broken? Start making it better in my, in my name. And then here, here's the most remarkable part. With all the odds stacked against us, this plan, crazy as it may seem, will not fail. It can't. It's his, it's his promise to us. And it, it hasn't for, for 2,000 years. I mean, it, it has survived the crucifixion and the Colosseum and every attempt since to oppress or, or destroy it. And I, and I know, right, it's easy to look around the world. For some of us, like, it feels like the sky is falling. Are you just like, man, how, how could things be like this? And we wonder how, how we're going to last, how we're going to survive, how we're going to be able to do what he's, but listen. I mean, not that we shouldn't be concerned, but, but friends, the church has survived worse has thrived in the midst of much, much worse. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What other investment gets that kind of assurance? I mean, is anything else in life that certain? On our, our recent uh, road trip, I, I listened to a, a very bizarre and um, pretty dark collection of short stories. Those of you who know me are like, yeah, that sounds right. Um, Stephen King. Um, cut me some slack. It was a 3,200-mile drive with young kids, all right? I had to listen to something. Um, otherwise, there was going to be our own nightmare in the backseat. Um, so I'm, I'm, lis I'm listening to this. And one of the stories in particular... Uh, was about this, this guy who, if he writes an obituary of a living person, that person dies. Like, immediately, right? Kind of interesting. Intriguing, intriguing little plot. Um, these are the kind of things that grab my, grab my attention, right? Um, but, like, just imagine for a second, like, knowing the future like that, with that, that kind of confidence. Not even knowing it, but, like, like creating it. Being, being that confident about, about something. I mean, what if you believe that was possible? Not in some, you know, creepy death way, right? Uh, but for good. Like, what if you actually knew that redemption was going to triumph? 
that good and, and goodness and beauty and love and justice were ultimately going to prevail. What if you knew that? You, you absolutely believe for the good of all people and that you got to be a part of that. That you were invited in to the process in which the God who created the universe was going to take the mess that we've made and make it into something good and beautiful once again and that we were, we were part of that. Like, I mean, just think about that. I mean, and sure, we don't, we don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how hard it's going to be, right? And honestly, like, you know, truth in advertising, out of the very next breath, Jesus tells the disciples, oh, by the way, I'm going to die a gruesome death, and so will anybody who wants to come with me, right? Because that, that's, that's what this kingdom looks like for Jesus. That's, that's what him triumphing looks like. That's an empty tomb, but first a brutal death. That's what he invites us into. That's, that's why there, there's no room for, for triumphalism or, or arrogance here, right? Not with Jesus. We don't know how long or how hard, but we do know that the work we begin in his name, he will finish. I mean, even, even this, this picture I showed a little bit ago, this is the, the temple uh, of, of Pan, right? This, this, Greek, this Greek god in Caesarea Philippi. So right, right in this, this same vicinity in which Jesus was there, and this would have been there at that, at that time. Uh, and right, right next to this cave, uh, right next to that scene, you can see it there, is this cave uh, that was commonly known in the, this kind of interesting stuff to me at least, uh, commonly known in the ancient world, particularly in this, this pagan context, as being the gates of hell, right? Like it was, it was the cave of death and darkness. It was sort of like where, uh, you know, hell came out to play at night, Right? Sounds a little bit like Stephen King, doesn't it? Um, but that, that was sort of this, this context here. It was a place of death and darkness. And I, don't, I don't know if Jesus was there when he said all this stuff, right? Or even if he had it on his mind. And yet we do know this, that when Jesus says this, where he's saying not even death is going to overcome it. Not my death, not your death. No one, it, it's, not going to, it's not going to stop it. Nothing can. I mean, think about it. I, I mean, I almost picture Jesus standing there um, wherever he's at in Caesarea Philippi, but he knows the context in which he is. And he looks across at all of the Roman Empire, which is the greatest empire the world had known at that point, right? And he sees it in this, this Greco-Roman outpost there of Caesarea Philippi. He sees it, right? And he, he knows historically that this has been a place of all kinds of, of false gods being worshipped, right? And in many cases, terrible, you know, human sacrifice, all kinds of crazy weird things happening there. And this is even a place where, where death and darkness is, is supposedly like living. And he looks at all of that and he says, he says to his disciples, you know what, guys? We're going to outlast all of that. None of, it, none of it can hold a candle to what I am about to do through my death and, and resurrection. And you, you get to be a part of it. Death can't stop it. My death, your death. Nothing can stop it. And if that is true, and I realize that's, that's a big if for many of us, right? But if this is true, if there's any possibility of this being true, I mean, it ought to change everything, right? It ought to change the way we, we view everything in our lives, the way we live, the way we think, the way we do our work and life and community, the way we treat people we don't like and the way we treat people we do like, right? It, it ought to change everything to know the outcome that one day he is going to triumph. And he is, he is using us in the process. So are we, friends, are we fueled by hope, not selfish ambition or anger or, or power, not by self-importance or a desire to be right, not violence or abuse or manipulation? And, and churches have been guilty of all of those things. 
Are we instead fueled by hope? I mean, where, where else today are you going to find hope? I mean, really? Like progress? Does anybody still think humans are getting better? Eesh, right? Technology? Education? Politics? Money? Family? Sex? I mean, you name it, right? We can find places that we try to put our hope and say, yes, you're, you're the answer, right? You're, you're my hope. You're my salvation. But friends, only here is there hope, real hope. And I, I know that all of us hear this at different places this morning. Some of you hear it and internally you're just, you're kind of laughing. Like, this is ridiculous. You've seen the abuse of the church. You've, maybe you've been hurt by the church. You know the mess. And I, again, I get it. I practically live here, okay? So I know how messy church can be. And, and you hear it and you think, this is not, this is not for me. Others of you, you're kind of on the other end of the spectrum, right? And you, your life has been changed by, by a community of redemptive people. And you, you know the difference that it makes. You know what God can do through his people. And you, you are all in. And then probably, you know, a bunch of us somewhere, somewhere in the middle. So I want to I just give one next step for all of us. No matter where you're at on that, on that spectrum, it's just going to look different for all of us. Um, one next step. Just try it. Try church. Not not just going, but being. Not, not just your, your preconceptions of, of what church is or what you think those people are like, right? But actually a, a real community of people. And just see if there's something redemptive at work. Not perfect. <laughs> Far from it, but redemptive. Hopeful. See if you can't find it. And I, and I realize for some of you that means you're going to have to set aside some of your cynicism. You're going to have to really wrestle intellectually with the question, who do you say that I am? And think through who that, who that is for Jesus. For, other, for others of you, it means, you know, just like stop putting your toe in the water, right? Just jump in for a little bit, right? It's not that bad. You're not going to die in the water, okay? Get to know some people and let other people get to know you in, in a meaningful way. Like be in a community group. Find places to inch your way forward closer and closer to a place of commitment to see, to see if God just does something in you, in your family, and the people around you. For others of us, it's a place to serve and that's, that's here or outside these walls because we're the church everywhere we go. There's no place untouched by us as we go into it. We're called to generosity, to, to be sacrificial with our, our finances, with our time, or to, to tell others about Jesus, all, all of these kinds of things. And I, in many ways, I didn't, I'm trying to, I didn't say any of this in the last uh, two services, but I think I'm gonna go here for just a second here. I'm sorry about that because it does mean it's gonna be longer. Um, but in some ways, I, I, I really, I have a love-hate relationship with a sermon like this. Um, what I, what I, what's hard is that um, for, so, for so many, you've seen the abuses of the church, you've been, you've, been, you've been hurt by the church, and you hear this, and you just, this is stupid, right? And I, and I know that, or you just, this is self-serving, he's just after our money, or time, or whatever, and, and so I, I get that, if some of you are, are hearing it in that way. Um, I understand that, but what I, what I love about this, in a place like this, is that so many of you get it, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why this, this as a church, this is a healthy place. It's not a perfect place, believe me, but it, there's, this is a healthy place. And so many of you have gotten a, a taste of what God can do through his people together, working together, centered upon 
who he is and what he's calling us to do. And you know it. And so it's like, I love preaching this because you're like, yes, there is something unique here and God is at work in his people and I, I want to give my life to it. I'll do anything for it because there is, there's hope here. And where, where else are we going to find hope? And friends, this, it is a mystery to me. It'll, I will, I'm guessing I will die with this a mystery to me that Jesus says, we're the plan and there is no plan B. But here we are, warts and all. It's, it's not about us, it can't be. It's not in our strength. Like, we're too deeply inadequate and broken ourselves, aren't we? And yet it is about him at work through his people, his spirit alive. When Jesus left, he didn't leave us alone. That his, his spirit dwells within us individually and collectively to do this, this kind of work. And the work we begin in his name, he will finish I mean, Jesus believed in this plan so much that he died for it. He gave everything. He rose again to make it a reality for us. And I'm so glad that he did because it's, it's meant redemption in my own life, hope for my family, in a personal, real way for me in the midst of my messes and, and my own issues. And I know it has for so many of you. We live in a world desperate for hope. Here it is. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, would you humble us as your people? God, I pray that we would see how deeply inadequate we are, how broken. (laughs) That we would feel this, this incredible tension of needing your redemption so badly and yet also being responsible to bring your redemption into our world. God, I pray that you would humble us to a point where arrogance and self-righteousness and all the junk that we so often get into would fade away. That we would know that you had to die in order to rescue us. And yet at the the same time, God, I, I pray that we would hear this as an incredible call to action that even though, yes, we have been humbled to the depths by your death, You have raised us up to the heights and called us your children to be at work in your world to do the things that you've called us to. God, I pray that we would see how that changes everything. God, I pray that that for for me, that I would leave here this morning and everything would be different knowing uh, that this is is who I am. This is who we are as your people. And that we would find ways to bring even just glimpses of hope everywhere we go. Begin that work in us, we pray. Amen.